DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, Ukraine update. DW's Kyiv correspondent Nick Connolly on the state of the war. So it's kind of almost World War One scenario. Huge losses, bodies strewn across the battlefields and very little movement at huge price in terms of lives and equipment. Ship spotting, how one man's hobby is aiding sanctions enforcement against Russia. I'm interested with Russian foreign policy and watching ships on the Bosphorus really gives clues about what they're engaging, what they're planning to do in the upcoming months. And timely exhibition, Palestinian culture on display at the Arab World Institute in Paris. This week, Ukraine experienced its most extensive shelling of the year so far, with over 100 settlements hit within a 24-hour period. The Ukrainian army's commander-in-chief has warned that the war with Russia is moving towards a new stage of static and attritional fighting, which could allow Moscow to rebuild its military power. To tell me more about the situation, I'm joined by DW's Kyiv correspondent, Nick Connolly, currently back in Germany for some rest and recuperation. Nick, thanks so much for joining me. Can you tell me what's been happening? So it's worth looking at the detail here. Yes, the Russian army is using more in the way of shells and missiles than they have for a good while. But this is spread across the country that includes things like a missile attack on central Ukraine on an oil facility, and then the more kind of localized attacks using artillery on Ukrainian-controlled settlements along the front lines. Front lines are a 1,000 kilometers long, so that gives you a sense of quite how spread out this is. I think the real focus right now of the Russian forces is trying to take a town just near Russian-occupied Donetsk called Avdivka, which is a place that's been under Ukrainian control since since the beginning of hostilities in 2014, the Russians were never able to take it, even though it's basically on Donetsk's doorstep and allows the Ukrainians to really prevent the Russians doing too much and kind of getting too comfortable in Donetsk in terms of their logistics. And we've seen huge losses, the Ukrainians say, thousands of soldiers, Russian soldiers killed in recent weeks, lots of Russian hardware, tanks, other armored vehicles being destroyed on Ukrainian minefields. So it's kind of almost World War One scenario, huge losses bodies strewn across the battlefields and very little movement at huge price in terms of lives and equipment. And also very little international media coverage in contrast to uh, previous um, situations. And this is all, of course, because the world's attention has been turned towards the conflict in the Middle East. How concerned uh, are people in Ukraine um, about this drop-off of international attention? That's certainly a big worry, especially for the politicians. And we know Volodymyr Zelensky as a former actor, comedian, media person. He is someone who follows that attention and that level of interest very, very closely. I think for now, we haven't yet seen that drop off in media interest translate into reduced military supplies. That's partly because these things take a long time to come through. The kind of pipeline for most pledges, promises in terms of weapons deliveries is six months plus. But there is obviously a fear that we're going to see fewer new pledges, new promises, and that in six, seven, eight, nine months' time, Ukraine will be left with a lot less in terms of new deliveries than has been the case recently. For the first time ever, Ukraine's basically 
matched Russia in terms of its firepower, in terms of its artillery. And that was really not the case just a year ago. You saw the Ukrainians just sitting there, even when they had enough in the way of artillery pieces, they didn't have the munition munition supplies to actually use them. So they were just having to sort of do three, four, five shots a day, basically, and wait for more supplies. So there is a real worry that that pipeline is going to dry up. I think looking forward, they're really trying to bring this message to Western audiences that Ukraine and Israel, Gaza, basically two theatres of the same conflict, had the Ukrainian foreign minister Dmitry Koleba trying to really hammer home that message that Russia and its ties to Iran and its direct ties with Hamas mean that basically this is all about an assault on liberal democracy in Israel and in Ukraine from autocratic regimes. And that's why America and other Western countries should continue supporting Ukraine. We've seen that partly taken on by the American side, Joe Biden trying to link funding for Israel to funding for Ukraine. We don't quite know yet how far that's going to work and if that's actually going to get through the legislative hurdles on the American side. But um, certainly that is a very widespread worry, especially given how dependent Ukraine is on Western support, not just in terms of munitions, in terms of equipment, but also in terms of funding, just to continue the basic tasks of states, paying pensions, paying wages, without huge, huge financial injections, Ukraine basically wouldn't be able to continue fighting and continue operating as it has been. It's also potentially quite a risky communication strategy, isn't it? Because it does uh, open up uh, the international community to charges of hypocrisy in terms of the ways in which uh, the uh, response to particularly the uh, shelling of civilian targets in Gaza, thinking particularly that uh, during a recent UN resolution calling for a ceasefire, there were a lot of European countries on the list of abstentions, including uh, Germany and the UK. Um, do, Do you think that this is a concern um, in, from, a, from a Kiev perspective? I think the Ukrainian government isn't too concerned about the image and the relations between certain European countries or the, uh, the United States, for instance, with the broader global South. They are very conscious of the fact that Russia has been appealing to public opinion in the global South and has been positioning itself, trying to kind of take the mantle of the Soviet Union and position itself as this anti-colonial power, challenging American hegemony, even though Ukrainians would say that the war in Ukraine is basically a power grab, an attempt to recreate colonial control over Ukraine. Um, I think all along there's been criticism that this conflict, this war in Ukraine, has been privileged in the sense that refugees from Ukraine have had a whole lot more solidarity and options than refugees from other conflicts, that the willingness to stump up cash and resources has been on a different level, to which the Ukrainian answer is normally well, this is a conflict on Europe's doorstep and it's just normal that European countries would have more to lose and more investment in a conflict that's next door, that's a six-hour train ride away from them than for conflicts further afield. Finally, Nick, in terms of the stories that you would really like to be heard at the moment. Maybe you could um, give me an example, and I'm not necessarily thinking of, you know, the big picture stories, but, um, you know, the the personal stories, the ones that have really touched you. What would you like to highlight? I think there are so many. Just one that I've come across just personally in recent weeks was just from my physiotherapist who, in her free time, is working with veterans or people who are still actively serving in the military, helping them with their physical but also mental sim- symptoms, so that's PTSD, but also just 
the effects of being on call, being perpetually watchful for 18 months, what that does to individuals' nervous systems. I think that isn't a new story. We covered those kind of stories after 2014. But the scale of this war, the number of people involved, and the fact that even once they leave their units on the front lines, maybe to come home to Kiev to spend some time with their families, they're not fully in safety. They still have that background risk of missile attacks, of drones. I think that really does something to people. It's it's a weird one because when you're in Kiev, it does often feel very normal and you see people out trying to in, enjoy a bit of autumn sunshine, have a coffee, and everyone's making conversation and it kind of can feel like a very normal European city. But then it, all it takes is a, for a waiter to drop a plate and you see everyone turning in a second and just the, the kind of split second look of panic on their faces for you to realize that people's nervous systems are really not normal and however much people try to treasure normality and to enjoy it as they can they are in that heightened sense of watchfulness of tension and even if they're not fighting that is really exacting a price and we don't quite know yet how that's going to play out what they're going to feel like once that adrenaline goes once that immediate danger is gone what that will have done to them but that is certainly something that is kind of ever present and is something that you can forget while the sun is shining and while people are out and trying to kind of live a normal 21st century European life. DW's Kiev correspondent, Nick Connolly there. Now, last weekend, over 60 countries met in Malta to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Among the issues on the agenda were international sanctions against Moscow. Much of Russia's efforts to circumvent sanctions are increasingly connected with Turkey and, in particular, the city of Istanbul, which is the gateway from the Black Sea to international markets. It's against this backdrop that one man's hobby of ship spotting has become increasingly crucial to efforts to thwart Russian sanction busting. From Istanbul, Dorian Jones reports. A Russian cargo ship announcing it's passing through the Bosphorus waterway on its way from a Black Sea port to international markets. We are on my terrace. I can see Bosphorus. I can see the ships passing in front of me. That's Yuruk Ushuk holding a camera with a large telephoto lens. And if there's a ship that I'm really, really interested I can go down by the water and take a better picture. I'm I'm interested with Russian foreign policy and watching ships on the Bosphorus really gives clues about Russian foreign policy and what they're engaging, what they're planning to do in the upcoming months. Ushuk is a geopolitical analyst whose hobby for more than a decade has been monitoring ships passing through the Bosphorus, which is known to locals as the throat. The waterway divides the city between Asia and Europe and is the only outlet for the Black Sea. Narrowing to only a few hundred metres, Ushuk says the Bosphorus offers a unique opportunity to monitor the movement of ships. Here, this bottleneck passes in the middle of a city of 20 million people. Yeah, like here you can be in a cafe or a tea house or walking on the street, and you can literally, ships are passing, you know, hundreds of metres away from you. You can, without any special equipment you can just read the ship follow the ship so in that sense it's a very special place this is the waterway that connects most of the russian trade and major military all all its military naval uh, connection to the mediterranean happens uh, through bosphorus 
and, and most of the ships passing in from the Bosphorus is related to Russia. This is the vital commercial uh, and military route for Russia. Ushuk's monitoring of the ships is a personal passion. He recalls the name of the vessels, the cargo and the flag it's sailing under. Since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, he's been focusing on Russian ships, working with an international network of volunteers and non-governmental organizations that share data online on their movement. Ushuk's website and Twitter messages are an essential go-to resource for media. Sanction-busting ships often turn off their automatic identification system, or AIS, that allows them to be tracked by international authorities. So monitoring efforts by people like Ushuk are vital, say organizations that work to expose Russian sanction-busting ships. George Volushin is a global financial crime expert at ACAMS, a US-based watchdog. I think this is very valuable because actually a common technique is to manipulate your AIS signal by, for example, um, just turning down uh, your transponder or trying to manipulate to interfere with it so that your ship appears to be a different place in a different location. So all of those leads are potentially valuable. Such monitoring helped expose Russia's export of stolen Ukrainian grain and coal from Black Sea ports it occupied in Ukraine, much of which Ushuk recorded passing through the Bosphorus waterway. Moscow denies accusations that it's sanction-busting. The waters of Istanbul are under limited Turkish jurisdiction and an international hub for hundreds of empty cargo ships and tankers that frequently change owners. That makes tracking difficult and creates conditions favourable to those seeking to circumvent a long list of sanctions. Adding to the difficulties in applying the sanctions is Turkey's refusal to enforce them. Ushuk says his monitoring reveals Istanbul is not only essential for Russia to pick up cargo ships, but also to service its fleet of ageing ships. There are lots of ships here. This is a good ship market. At the same time, Turkey offers major quality shipyards immediately to the east of Istanbul. Actually, like sanction violation more than the anchorage area in the shipyards because Turkey is not part of EU and the U.S. sanctions are not necessarily universal. They only cover U.S. nationals or U.S. companies. Um, we see many sanctioned vessels come in to get services from the shipyards to the east of Istanbul. And uh, they are not breaking any domestic laws. Trade between Russia and Turkey has been surging ever since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and is set to grow further. The Turkish and Russian presidents have committed themselves to increasing trade from 70 to $100 billion. For Ushuk, that can only mean more ships to monitor. There are more and more Russian ships because there are so many sanctions. Russia is the world's now most sanctioned country. So most of the people who are engaged in trade with Russia, they're trying to hide their activities because they are worried that somehow some sanctions will come back and hunt them. For Ushuk, every ship has become an opportunity to expose the latest Moscow misdeed. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. Just a quick reminder here of our feedback address, insideeurope at dw.com. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe.
Museum goers in Paris have just a couple of weeks left to visit an exhibition dedicated to Palestinian art and culture. Titled Ce que la Palestine apporte au monde, or What Palestine Brings to the World, the exhibition was of course conceived and commissioned long before Hamas's October 7th attacks and subsequent war with Israel. Exploring both Palestinian history and the creativity of Palestinian artists and their dreams for the future, the exhibition runs until November 19th at the Arab World Institute. Lisa Bryant visited the collection for us. There's a collection of photos at this show that looks like the window of a real estate agency. It shows Palestinian properties with descriptions below. Calm and light-filled and unobstructed surroundings, reads one. Garden and parking, 120 square meters, inhabitants, 10 people. The house it's describing is a pile of rubble, backdropped by a blue sky. This is not Gaza, 2023. This photo shows the fallout of another Israeli-Palestinian conflict in Gaza in 2009. But it's impossible not to think about what's happening today. It's um, heartbreaking, I must say. One artist has uh, died since the beginning of the conflict, and uh, most of them have, have lost members of their families. Some have lost their houses. That's Eric Delpont, the Arab World Institute's chief curator. He's talking about some of the Gaza artists whose works are part of this exhibit that opened in late May. Its title, What Palestine Brings to the World. The Palestinians are people like so many others which have been hurt through the history, yet there is a force of life and there is a a believing in what can be tomorrow in spite of the harshness of today. The collection of photos, paintings and sculptures were authored and donated by Palestinian and other mainly Arab artists. Many live in the West. The artworks are aimed to be part of a future Palestinian museum in East Jerusalem. There's also a cloud museum painted by Palestinian artists of what they hope will someday be a reality in Gaza. Now we know that today it won't be for tomorrow, definitely. But still, it's very interesting that this initiative is still going on. The collection considers Palestinian history through the eyes of its artists. One massive painting looks a bit like Picasso's Guernica, the Basque town that was bombed during the Spanish Civil War. In another room, photos show Israeli no-trespass signs transposed over images of former Palestinian land. A series called Occupied Pleasures includes a photo of two men and a child sitting in armchairs with an Israeli border barrier behind them. Other paintings show Palestinians finally heading to their homeland. One of the motto of the uh, Palestinian population who lives in exile is, uh, of course, the return to Palestine. And many works have as title uh, what uh, we call the March of the Return. The show marks the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, or catastrophe, the term Palestinians use for their mass displacement during the establishment of Israel. Arab World Institute President Jack Long, a former French culture minister, was in Gaza in July. It shows uh, how the people are suffering and uh, how in the same time 
they have a dream of another, uh, another world, another situation. Long says turnout has spiked since the war. Many visitors are of Arab origin. It's enriching. We see the distress of the Palestinians through these works. Khadia Khobani, whose family has roots in Algeria, says it's hard not to think about what's now happening in Gaza. It's hard. It's sad. You don't have to be Arab or Muslim to feel this. Student Jil Bahesh also draws parallels between this exhibit and the war. It really shows us what Palestinians think and how they try to free themselves from the conflict through their words and pictures. The Arab World Institute's Jacques Long is not hopeful about the immediate future between Palestinians and Israelis, but he still believes a new Palestinian museum will someday open in East Jerusalem. For now, this collection is staying put in the French capital. Lisa Bryant, DW, Paris. Meanwhile, at DW, we have expanded our cultural output with a brand new podcast, Don't Drink the Milk. You can find it anywhere that you can find inside Europe, including DW's new DW podcast channel on YouTube. Don't Drink the Milk. Weird name for a podcast, right? But it will all make sense, I promise. And no, it's not a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. The arguments of homeopathy are based on like sand and the sand was pouring through my fingers. I'm Rachel Stewart and for this new podcast from DW, I'm travelling around Europe, tracing the backstories of objects, ideas and movements that you know well. But maybe you never really stopped to think how these things got to you. Condoms are known as French letters in the 19th century. Syphilis is the French disease, but in France it's the Italian disease. Join us to follow the strange journeys of these everyday things and see how they change shape as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. There is fun and intrigue to be had on Don't Drink the Milk, but also here on Inside Europe too. Congratulations to everyone who knew that it was the women of Iceland who went on strike for gender equality last week. This week, our questions tied to the newly published Global State of Democracy report. Europe is still the world's leading region, but there has been backsliding. So what we want to know is this. Which of the following countries saw the biggest drop in their democracy ratings between 2017 and 2022? Was it Poland? UK or Hungary. Remember, we're looking for the biggest drop, not the lowest placing. Lots more still to come on Inside Europe. In fact, just after the break, we're going to be joined by The Guardian's European Environment Correspondent, Ajit Naranjan, to talk to us about carbon bombs. So do stay tuned. You're listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany.
This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, two very different energy stories pointing to two very different futures. First up, carbon bombs. An interview with The Guardian's environment correspondent, Ajit Niranjan. If they live out their full lifetime, if you dig up all the fuels underneath them and burn them, any chance of keeping the planet from heating 1.5 degrees Celsius is just blown completely out of the water. Then, making waves, a visit to a wave energy test site off the coast of Portugal. As Denmark was for wind, Portugal could be the birthplace of a new renewable energy source. All that, plus a rousing dose of Milanese rap. And yep, you heard that right. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. Limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees is a central aspiration of the Paris Climate Agreement. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has set out in detail just what a difference even a half a degree overshoot will mean in terms of biodiversity loss, melting sea ice and ocean level rises, rainfall, access to food and water and habitable living conditions for millions of people. Despite this, researchers working in collaboration with The Guardian newspaper have identified the existence of 425 so-called carbon bomb extraction projects, cumulatively holding enough coal, oil and gas to burn through the world's rapidly dwindling carbon budget four times over. This week, The Guardian turned its attention to the banks who are funding these projects, several of them headquartered in Europe. Earlier, I spoke to The Guardian's European environment correspondent, Ajit Naranjan, to find out more. One thing that crops up time and time again when you talk to climate scientists or people working in any way to stop the planet heating is that at the end of the day, it does mostly, not completely, but mostly it comes down to money. Here, these banks and other financial institutions have a big role to play. And so what happened in this case is that After the researchers identified these carbon bomb projects, a couple of French non-profit data organizations, so volunteer-run data uh, non-profits in France, came up with the idea of extending the database by basically matching up the projects that we have here, the projects to dig up coal, oil, and gas, and linking them with other publicly available data on which companies are operating them. And that in itself maybe doesn't tell you so much, but it enabled them to then link the companies to the banks who are financing them. This isn't to say that these banks are directly financing these carbon bomb projects. Most of the financing is general corporate finance. And so all it's saying is that there's a link between these banks who choose to invest money in these companies who they know to be operating projects where... If they live out their full lifetime, if you dig up all the fuels underneath them and burn them, that any chance of keeping the planet from heating 1.5 degrees Celsius is just blown completely out of the water. Right. Okay. And that is potentially a key leverage point, right? Because if you can convince the banks to stop funding these projects, then these projects become much less easy to do in the first place. I mean, what kind of options are there in order to sort of clamp down on the financing of these projects? What kind of tools are available and might perhaps come into force? One of the key things to know here is that a couple of years ago, the International Energy Agency said in their pathway to get to net zero emissions, so kind of their roadmap for a cleaner economy, they said that from 2021, there shouldn't be any new oil or gas fields being explored. 
there's two ways that these financing streams can be stopped. The first is if that pressure from either shareholders or kind of the public kind of forces banks to stop financing individual projects. And there's already been some progress in that front. But as we can see from this database, there are still a ton of projects that are planned but haven't been started, about 128 at least. But the other side of the coin is how do you kind of increase the pressure on companies generally to pull out of fossil fuels? Or at least that's what the activists are trying to debate. And one of the levers to do that is to say, okay, well, if banks are financing companies who are running these projects, even if it's this general corporate financing, then they've got some level of responsibility towards the emissions that end up resulting from burning those fuels. Listen, I'd like to sort of zoom in on this European angle because uh, quite a lot of these banks are actually headquartered in Europe. What can you tell me about that? Of the banks who provided the most finance to carbon bomb operators over the last six years, four of the top 10 were in the US, three were in China, and three were in Europe. So the top three European ones, BNP Paribas, HSBC, and Barclays, are all banks that have made some steps towards kind of reducing the amount of kind of exposure to oil and gas projects and fossil fuels in their portfolios. But there's still, as campaigners say, is still a way to go. So, I mean, just over that six-year period, um, according to this database, Barclays provided $54.4 billion in financing, HSB $62.1 billion, BNP Paribas $71.9 billion. Just to put it in context, the amount of money that the rich world promised the poorer world in terms of kind of loans and grants to adapt to climate change is meant to be $100 billion a year. And so, I mean, in particular, one, one country we looked at in a bit more detail was France, because France emerged in the, in the data as the biggest European financer of carbon bond projects. Which is so interesting, isn't it? Because France, in terms of its actual energy grid, comes out quite well because it's invested so heavily in nuclear. Exactly. Because it's got a lot of nuclear, France is way, way cleaner in terms of its electricity grid than a country like Germany. This is why I think campaigners often stress that it's not enough to just look at kind of what's going on at a domestic level. Like countries like Germany, France, the UK, they've been polluting for so long. They're some of the biggest historical polluters of planet heat and gases. But on top of that, because they're also massive economies with well-developed financial sectors, they're also taking decisions every day that increase or decrease warming in other parts of the world. It also exposes them to a lot of risks, right? Like if you're a French bank or a British bank and you're pumping money into companies who are operating carbon bomb projects, which are just not compatible with keeping the world from heating 1.5 degrees Celsius, then that poses a risk for you as well. Overall, that means that the financial system is super exposed Basically, we've not just got carbon bombs on our hands, we've got financial economic bombs as well. Why is no one defusing them? <laughs> the way one, one expert put it to me is that at the end of the day, it is about profitability and oil and gas are still extremely profitable. So this longer term view isn't really very present. The exception to that in the financial sector, which I think is super interesting, is that the insurance industry has gone way faster on kind of waking up to this problem than anyone else has, mainly because they're 
obviously at massive risk of kind of all these extreme weather events wiping things out. And so you've got big reinsurance companies. So the insurance companies that insure other insurance companies who have been making really strong statements about climate change and restricted their policies in terms of what they're willing to insure much quicker than kind of regular banks or other actors like private equity or whoever, where there's been really very little movement. That's really interesting. Um, listen, finally, Ajit, the, the timing of the release of, of this reporting um, it comes as uh, the world is gearing up for COP28. There, the EU will be represented by a new climate commissioner who has himself got a, an oil industry background, having previously worked for Shell. What kind of uh, hope do you see at an EU level? for progress, for action? I mean, you mentioned uh, the EU's climate envoy, but on top of that, the president of the whole summit is also the CEO of ADNOC, the the UAE oil company. It's interesting, though, when Hoekstra was grilled by MEPs, members of the European Parliament, just, I think, a few weeks ago, he came out with quite strong statements against the oil industry. So, I mean... He said fossil fuels must become history, the sooner the better. Like he also told the committee, the fact that certain oil majors have long known of their role in climate change and sought to ignore the evidence, he said that he finds truly unethical. Now that is very strong language um, for somebody who has, yes, on his CV worked for not only Shell, but also McKinsey, the consultancy firm that does a lot of work for oil and gas companies. And so there's this question mark around COP28, because some people, including the president of the COP, have kind of tried to frame it as bringing together the oil industry. They've tried to sell it as that their CVs, their credentials, their contacts within the oil and gas industry will enable them to help bring them with them along on the transition. On the other hand, when you, like I've interviewed doctors and uh, experts from, I don't know, the World Health Organization and climate scientists in the last weeks about about what they think is going to happen at COP. And I mean, one one doctor from the World Health Organization put it to me as, we're investing in things that are killing us. If you burn a fossil fuel, you're releasing all these particles that get into your lungs, that get into the atmosphere and heat the planet. And she was saying that what these negotiators at COP need to realize is that they're not just negotiating about climate or glaciers or polar bears or anything like that. They're negotiating about the state of my lungs and the state of your lungs. Ajit Naranjan is The Guardian's European Environment Correspondent. You'll find his reporting on the Environment pages of The Guardian website, which has a brand new European edition. Now, the world, as we've just heard, needs to kick its carbon habit fast. One European country showing the way is Portugal, which already gets well over 50% of its energy from renewable sources and has committed to going 100% renewable by 2030. Wave energy forms a key part of that strategy, and our reporter, Lisa Louis, has been visiting a project site off Portugal's northern coast to find out more. I'm about four kilometres off the coast on a little inflatable speedboat. The waves are quite high and it's going up and down. I must say I'm feeling a little dizzy and just in front of me in the water I can see a yellow buoy. This is not a buoy like any other. Now this 18 metre tall and 9 metre wide machine in front of me 
is to harness the power of the world's largest untapped energy source, the ocean. Because while it's moving up and down, a converter inside transforms the mechanical energy of the waves into electricity. The buoy is the outcome of more than a decade of development and the first commercial-sized prototype by Swedish company Corpora Ocean that has set up shop in Viana du Castello. Inspired by the pumping principle of the human heart... It's not the only wave energy machine in the market. Several others are being tested around Europe. But Core Power Ocean CEO Patrick Muller says the company's device has two decisive advantages compared to other existing technologies. We are producing so much more energy for given size of the equipment. So on this 9-meter diameter buoy, we are producing 300 kilowatts. In historical wave devices, you have had thousands of tons of equipment to do that same power. The technology we have introduced here that is just letting big waves pass by in storms and not reacting to them is protecting us in storms. The 30 million euro project was half financed through government and European subsidies and half through equity. Recently connected to the grid, it's a further step towards commercial projects that Corpora Ocean is hoping to develop by the end of 2027. The company's Patrick Muller thinks these projects could not only benefit countries like Portugal with large coastlines. Europe is getting increasingly interconnected, which is a very good thing. So in the end, it's also you can say if you, if you take wave energy along the entire European coast, you can stabilize a big part of the European energy system. The project is also benefiting the local economy in Viana do Castelo, where Core Power Ocean employs 14 of its 80 staff and counting. My name is Miguel Silva. I'm the managing director of Core Power Ocean in Portugal. 45-year-old Silva had been working abroad in the renewable sector for more than a decade. An environmental uh, controlled uh, space. But he came back for a reason, Silva told me as he was showing me around the workshop where the next generation of Corpora Ocean's wave energy converter was being manufactured. Portugal has a huge tradition in wave energy, started back in 77, and we have been the showcase for many attentives of projects to prove that wave energy is not only feasible but also bankable. As Denmark was for wind, Portugal could be the birthplace of a new renewable energy source uh, that's called wave energy. It's, it's with enormous pride that we are a part of that effort and we are able to put again Portugal in the map for another sea-related uh, conquest. The Portuguese government is indeed hoping for a leading position in the wave energy market. Lisbon is aiming to have 10 gigawatts of ocean energy, which also includes offshore wind energy, by 2030. That could meet a fourth of the country's electricity needs, as well as provide economic benefits, as Secretary of State for the Sea, José Maria Costa, told me. These 10 gigawatts of ocean energy will generate an investment of 40 million euros and create between 20 and 30,000 new jobs, mainly in the supply chain. That includes the areas of metalworking, electricity, communication, electronics, shipping and numerous scientific sectors. So could Portugal become the world leader in wave energy? 
Portugal has great wave energy reserves. There's a good chance for that, says Ana Brito Imelo. She's executive secretary at the International Energy Agency's Technology Collaboration Program on Ocean Energy. Though other countries have thrown their hats into the ring. Countries like Spain, France, Sweden and uh, outside Europe, uh, USA have investment in the development of test sites to support uh, research and development. And this is crucial for overcoming technical and operational uh, challenges. So in general, there is a global interest on wave energy. Portugal has made significant uh, strides in wave energy research and has been testing wave energy converters off its coast. So it's considered one of the countries at the forefront of wave energy development. And yet, getting wave energy ready for the market, here and abroad, might not be that straightforward, says Mara Madaleno, an economist specialized in renewable energies at Aveiro University. It's difficult to finance technologies that are not yet mature. Several wave energy projects have been tested off Portugal since the 1990s, but each one had to be taken out of the water after about two years because there was no money to continue them. That's also down to high maintenance costs. Back off the coast of Viana do Castelo, Corpora Ocean's Patrick Muller is confident that the company can overcome these hurdles. They have already collected 16 million euros in subsidies for the next stage of the project, which will cost a total of 66 million euros. That'll include three additional machines at the test site off the Portuguese coast. The biggest challenge for the world to get to a net zero electricity system is to ensure that there is clean electricity available at all times, uh, every hour of the year, not only when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining, and wave energy is unique in the way that waves always come in. To deliver on that promise, the company is hoping to win the race against wave energy technologies developed elsewhere. Lisa Lui, DW, Viana do Castelo. The versatile Lisa Louie there. I wonder where she'll pop up next. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Finally this week, music from the streets. The streets of Milan's San Siro neighbourhood, to be precise. An area of the Italian capital notorious as a centre of poverty, drugs and crime. With heavy beats and fierce rap lyrics, the neighbourhood's second-generation migrants are expressing their anger and frustration with both their neighbourhood and the wider society beyond. Angelo van Schaik has been taking it all in. (laughs) 
I've been making music since I was 11. At first, I played the drums because I needed to release energy. But I wanted to write lyrics, though I can't sing. Then my mother said, write rap lyrics. Yossa is the nickname of Patrick Yossin. He's 24 years old, has an Italian mother and a Lebanese father. And he's a part of the rap group Exagora from the San Siro neighborhood in Milan. It's an area with rundown apartment blocks from the 1940s and 50s first inhabited by immigrants from the south of Italy, now by immigrants from all over the world. 11,000 families of 85 nationalities in cramped, moldy apartments. Via Bernardo Zamagna. This is the courtyard of one of the buildings here. With your social housing projects, there's rubbish everywhere. And they're all like this. Many people here occupy their apartments illegally. Places are empty for years, but are not assigned to anyone, even when there are waiting lists for years. People get so desperate that they occupy the empty apartments and accept the bad living conditions. It stinks. There are clothes everywhere, but also domestic waste. I see some transparent garbage bags with rotting fruit in them and a used diaper. Flies are circling around. This is Milan, Italy's richest city, says Jassa. There's high unemployment, poverty and crime here. To make ends meet, many youngsters here resort to stealing or drug dealing. San Siro is a bit of a strange and complicated neighborhood, says Marciano Melotti. Melotti teaches sociology at the Cusano University in Rome. Senz'altro ci sono aree un po' degradate. San Siro is a multicultural neighborhood with lots of decaying apartment blocks. Most locals consider it to be on the fringe of the city, though it's actually very close to the center. The area includes the San Siro Stadium, where both AC Milan and Inter play their football matches. And nearby, there's an area with luxury apartments and villas. So it's a neighborhood with two faces. And these two faces have also created cultural fusion like rap music. It's a hot Sunday afternoon, and all seven members of the rap group Exagora have turned up to make some music. The most important question, why has Milan become the center of Italian rap music? Together with Yassa, Matteo Guerrelli is the founder of Attitude Records, a niche record company that releases albums by rappers from Milan. The good local economy and the fashion industry have made Milan the capital of Italian hip-hop. Immigrants and second-generation immigrants have few opportunities, and they see people around them who have a lot of money. They get frustrated about that and express their feelings in hip-hop. Yassa agrees with Matteo. 
In the Zen neighborhood in Palermo or Scampia in Naples, people only see poverty. They don't see the riches that surround them. So frustrations are bigger. Besides, the record industry is concentrated in Milan, so we have more chances to somehow make it. Matteo Gorelli is, with his 31 years, a bit older than the rest of the crew. Due to what he calls a youthful scrape with the law, he was sentenced to a long time in jail. He was let out early for good behavior. Attitude Records is his creation. The first EP we released was by Exagora, the guys that are making music inside. The record costs a thousand euros. That's how much society pays each day to keep someone in jail. It's partly a provocation and partly a way to wake society up. Until now, we've managed to sell two records. 74, Paul is one of the rappers on the EP. I met Matteo in prison, here in Milan. I was doing time for some minor drug offenses. Matteo had a much longer sentence than I had. We started making music together in prison, with the limited possibilities that we had. When I was released, he contacted me again and told me he was working on this project and asked if I was interested in collaborating. My raps are about my own life, the frustrations and the mistakes I've made. Back on the streets of San Siro. It's very sad to see that the world-famous stadium is just over there. The scene of some of the biggest football matches in history. And not even 500 meters away are apartment blocks falling to pieces. The concrete on this one is rotting away. This elderly Italian man is angry, very angry. He's been living here for 15 years and has been mugged 10 times. Mainly by foreigners, he says. And politicians, they do nothing. It's a bloody shame, he adds. Yassa is sad to hear the man's story. I feel defeated. People in this neighborhood feel they're left to fend for themselves and then take it out on the immigrants. And the result is racism. In June, there was an explosion of violence in France after a policeman shot a young immigrant. There were widespread riots around the country and clashes between young people and the police. Sociologist Marciano Melotti doesn't think something like that could happen in Italy. Rap music is often the result of anger and frustration. And those feelings are very present in San Siro, but also in other suburbs of Milan. The anger is especially evident among second-generation immigrants, 
but also among young Italians, as they too face lots of difficulties to achieve their dreams and goals. There's a social time bomb beneath Italian society, but until now, frustrations have been expressed through music. I don't think there's much chance that we'd see the sort of violence here in Milan or Italy that we saw in France. Italy has always been an immigration society. Only recently has the country experienced immigration. In particular, the big cities in the north, like Milan and Turin, are changing rapidly. Strangely enough, due to the lack of a real immigration policy, new arrivals have to adapt quickly to Italian society. Many have opened shops or work in the factories of the north. But more and more people are left behind. That may create problems in the future. But for now, at least for some, rap music provides a release. Angelo von Schaik, DW, Milan, Italy. And that, folks, is a wrap. I'm so sorry I had to say that. Listen, if you would like to reach out to us about anything that you've heard in the show, then our address is InsideEurope at DW.com. Also, don't forget that we're on all the usual podcast platforms, including YouTube, where you will find us under DW Podcasts. The programme was produced by Helen Sini with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineers Sierra Abu Sleiman and Gianluca Wald. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. Mm-hmm.